I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Rebecca Bauman. On January 22nd, 2019, HarperCollins will publish a standalone short story by Sylvia Plath, Mary Ventura in the Ninth Kingdom. Posthumous publications tend to make the news, especially when they're by beloved authors and from the archives. When that happens, often the phrase lost and found is used as a shorthand for important material and intellectual labor done by special collections librarians, curators, catalogers, conservationists, archivists, scholars, and graduate students. Folks who often use archival collections and specialize in placing material found in collections into a broader literary and cultural context. In this special edition of Harper Academic Calling, we reached out to Rebecca Bauman, the head of public services at the Lilly Library at Indiana University Bloomington, where some of the Plath collection is held, to talk about the Plath materials about the amazing work library staff does, and, well, how to talk responsibly about literary collections held in libraries and archives, some of which then become more accessible and available with trade publication, as we have done with Sylvia Plath's Mary Ventura and the Ninth Kingdom. The important and necessary and often invisible work that special collections, archival, preservation, and conservation librarians do along with the work of researchers and scholars who most often access and use special collections, shouldn't be erased as we celebrate the publication of new, in air quotes, work by a beloved writer. Making Mary Ventura available to a wide audience was never just the work of our publishing company, and we are proud to be part of this text's whole story in American literary culture. Stay tuned after our conversation to hear an excerpt from the audiobook of Mary Ventura read by Orla Cassidy. Thank you to Harper Audio for making the opening of the story available to our listeners. Mary Ventura in the Ninth Kingdom is to be published in paperback original by Harper Perennial and will also be available as an e and audiobook. A forthcoming special edition hardcover is expected in February. Joining us on the phone today is Rebecca Bauman, who is the head of public services for the Lilly Library at Indiana University Bloomington. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm wondering if you could start out by telling us a little bit about your job at the Lilly Library. Sure, I, I basically get to take care of some of the most beautiful and amazing books and manuscripts in the world and just hang out with cool books and cool people. That's kind of the, <laughs> the casual version of my job. So I, as my job title, as you said, is head of public services. So I oversee all of the sort of public-facing functions of the library. Reference, instruction, we teach about 250 class sessions here a year, outreach, publicity, I do our social media. I also get to curate exhibitions sometimes, but I really think of my, sort of the core of my job is trying to connect our wonderful collections 
with the wonderful people who want to use them. Sure. So big public libraries, either in cities and certainly big libraries at research institutions, colleges and universities throughout the country usually have a huge team of people that help make the collections work for the communities they serve. Research university libraries are pretty cool because they have all sorts of people that most people don't get to see in sort of their day-to-day library use. Can you tell us a little bit about the team behind what makes a great research university library great, the special collections people, the conservationists, the archivists, and the rare book folks? Yeah, I I love this question because I think that's one of the things that people don't realize about big libraries is how many hands have touched the material before it is set in front of you on a table for you to do your research or set in front of a student in a classroom. And I'm kind of the last person in that chain, right? I'm, I'm often the person who might hand you the book or who might talk, chat with you over email to set up your visit. But some of the people who work on this material before you see it and who you might never get to meet, certainly for like, you know, we're going to be talking about the Sylvia Plath collection. Mm -hmm. So a big manuscript collection like that, there are archivists who have organized this collection. Sometimes when we get things there, they might be pretty organized, but other times they might be a mess, especially if it's a a donated collection, which is not the case with Plath, but sometimes it is. Things can be just sort of dumped in boxes, not organized in any way, and catalogers and archivists take these items and arrange them in a way that will hopefully, usually try to preserve the way that they came to us, right? We don't want to lose any information about how that that collection came, but also make it understandable to researchers who are going to use it in the future. So there's a lot of descriptive work with books. Catalogers have to provide all of the metadata, all of the information that you will use to find this thing in an online catalog. A lot of description takes an incredible amount of knowledge and a lot of thought and energy to, to describe these collections. We also have a conservation department who makes sure that everything is stable to be used. So making sure that you know fragile papers aren't going to get torn, making sure that everything has a box or enclosure that's going to protect it, sometimes making repairs, major or minor, to, to books if their you know, uh, spine is coming loose or there's something else that might be wrong that we can that we can stabilize before it's going to be used by the researcher. Also worth pointing out that we have curators. These are the people who who bring the material to the library. So they have to decide of, of everything that's out there that is available to be purchased or that we might want to try to encourage someone to donate. What belongs in our collection? What will our researchers or researchers of the future, posterity, what is important to be saved? And that's, those are huge, huge questions. People also don't realize the role that booksellers play in these big libraries. Mm-hmm. These are the people who often, you know, there's this kind of like Indiana Jones narrative <laughs> that we like of, of rare books, right, is that these, these lost things. The booksellers are the ones who often really are finding these things out in the world. They're finding it at some, you know, pokey little sale where it's, you know, undescribed and they know what they are seeing. They know something that is rare and interesting. And they are then 
sort of bringing it to light, bringing it to the attention of libraries and collectors who might want to bring it into their collection. So this is a whole world of sort of connected book people all doing our different jobs and working together so that then the researcher, the student, the scholar can do the next part of the story, which is how are they going to connect it to other ideas, to other works that are out there, and they're going to tell the story of why it's significant after all these other people have already described it and and made it available to them. The part of uh, Sylvia Plath's collection is held at the Mortimer Rare Book Collection at Smith, where Plath was an undergrad and where she taught, and part of it is at the Lilly Library. So how long has the Lilly had a portion of the Sylvia Plath collection? And what kind of stuff is in it? I hear, I hear there might be hair. <laughs> yes, there is hair, which is one of the, the objects in the collection that is, is most often requested. People really, really like to see that. And this is a great question, too, because I think, especially being where we are, right, the Lily Library is in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and people don't, for better or worse, people don't often think of Indiana when they think of, like, where a sort of great museum or library is going to be. So we get questions a lot like, well, why is this here? What's the Indiana connection? And certainly Plath didn't live in Indiana or anything like that. The first Plath collection that we purchased was in 1961. So this was when uh, Plath was still alive. And she sold some of her drafts of her poetry to a bookseller, and we bought it in 1961 with some of Ted Hughes' uh, material as well mm-hmm. at the same time. And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of proud of the Lily for seeing, even back then, that this, that she was a very significant poet, and this, this was worth collecting, because these aren't the aerial poems, these aren't her best-known work, but they are incredibly rich drafts. She went through sometimes as many as eight or nine drafts of a single poem, and it would transform completely throughout those drafts. And then the biggest part of our collection we bought in 1977, mm-hmm. um, and this was sold to another book dealer by Aurelia Plath, Sylvia's mother. And Aurelia, and history must, must give a nod to this woman, um, she saved things. She saved um, cards that Sylvia made when she was just a very little girl, so childhood artwork diaries from her teenage years, what we would call juvenilia. This is why we have the hair, because Aurelia Plath cut at various points of Sylvia's life, pieces of her hair. Some of them are little wisps of baby hair, and then all the way up to this big sort of long chunk of honey-colored hair, almost a ponytail worth, that was cut when she was, I think, 10 or 12, pre-teenage hair sample. (laughs) So that collection has her diaries from when she was a teenager, her high school papers, her college papers, her teaching notes from when she was at Smith. We also have good sampling of her artwork, which is fascinating. She really kind of always toyed with the idea of being an artist as well as a writer. We also have a good collection of her personal books, so books that she read when she was in college and sometimes annotated, so you can see how she was responding to, say, James Joyce as she was reading him, which are incredible. I love looking at those and seeing, you know, her reading notes. And it's almost like these authors 
talking to each other across time. Mm-hmm. So their marvelous collections, really, really rich and deep, and one of the most popular archives that we have here at the library. That's really fascinating, I, especially the connection between you know her books, what she was, what the marginalia that she, that she made. That is a, somebody can write a story about that in and of, in and of itself. Absolutely, and, and we've had scholars who have gotten really deep into that marginalia. I remember years ago when I was first starting out here, I fielded a reference question, an email reference question from someone who had, had been here doing research in the archive and had taken lots of notes, but she had a question about, I think, I can't remember if it was a comma or a period, but it was like one punctuation mark in one note that Plath had written in the margin of her portable James Joyce reader. And, you know, so getting to that level of sort of detail in how she's responding to these other texts and how her writing style is developing and, and things like that. So one of the things that, if somebody's interested in, in seeing the materials in the Lily's collection, is to take a look online at the Finding Aid. Can you tell us what a Finding Aid is and how best to go about reading that online entry? Sure. So a Finding Aid is it's kind of like, I guess, kind of like an inventory. It's listing everything that's in the collection and giving some some sense of what you're going to find when you arrive at this material. And I should, this particular finding aid with the Plath collection was created by a woman named Becky Cape, who was a librarian here for many years, is now retired. She was my first boss, so I, I love her. <laughs> and uh, it's a very detailed finding aid. You often, a lot of a lot of collections, you won't find quite this much information. Mm-hmm. But this one, because it's such a significant collection, and and we knew it would have a lot of use, we took a, a lot of time and work to make it very detailed. So you will see a sort of item by item description of what you will find. So you'll see something like box one folder one, and then a list of drafts that are in that folder. And it's usually sorted uh, by material type, so all of the letters are together, all of the diaries are together, all of the artwork is together, and different collections are organized in different ways depending on how they were arranged sometimes by the person who had them or arranged by how a researcher might need to use them. So the Plath Finding Aid is very detailed and organized sort of by material type and then date within those different types of material. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was obviously that the entry for box 8 folder 15 um, which is the box that contains the box and folder that contains the Mary Ventura manuscript. And so there's there are four total versions, is that is that right? No, it's so this is it's a little confusing because there is the story that is is being published mm-hmm. uh, is Mary Ventura and the Ninth Kingdom. And we we do have three, three different three versions of, of that. Although they're they're really kind of the same draft. It's like one of them's a carbon, you know, there's not substantial differences. But then that fourth thing, the one that just says Mary Ventura, mm-hmm. that's actually a completely different short story. So Plath recycled that name. This was the name of one of her childhood friends. Um, right. And she used it in two different stories. And it's interesting, the one that's just called Mary Ventura is, I 
believe an earlier story and it's it's a little bit clunkier um <laughs> the ninth kingdom is is really quite it's quite interesting it's a fascinating read and one of the things that is amazing in, in spending time with a collection like this is being able to see how a writer develops from you know in this case their their college assignments from one assignment to the next one work to the next and one of the drafts that we have of Mary Ventura and the Ninth Kingdom has uh, the instructor's comments on it. Mm -hmm. And then Sylvia Plath actually making her own comments. And there's one section where the instructor says that something is too easy and, like, too facile. And Plath writes back, he thinks it's too facile, but use your own judgment, which is one of my favorite things on this draft is that... Oh you can actually see her kind of asserting her own sense of what is right. So she's really thinking through that writing process. That is a, sort of a, a murderous Sylvia Plath line. That's great. That, that, <laughs> that, that response, that's wonderful in, in and of itself. But, and for me, the interesting, one of the many interesting things about the finding aid was exactly that. The drafts did that you can tell from the aid that were submitted for a class. You can see her grades on some of these. Um, you can see the instructor's comments. Sometimes they're will also be a little sort of typed sheet mm -hmm. that is almost kind of like a, a summary from the instructor with comments where they're summarizing the story and telling her where it could be better. It's so rich in, in detail and I've had an opportunity to look at, at quite a few literary manuscript collections, quite a, papers of many, many different writers, and I have never personally seen anyone who revised more than class. She was a writer and a rewriter. She was editing her work and sort of always, always, always editing her, her own kind of self-image and sense of self. So when you look at these stories and poems in conjunction with her letters, her artwork, where she's thinking even about like, well, what does my hair color say about who I am? And then thinking about, well, what does this word choice say about my story? Just the editorial process of a human being's life and how we sort of create ourselves every day anew is so apparent and you just don't see that in a lot of collections. That's fascinating and so too is the chance to see Sylvia Plath learning to be Sylvia Plath the writer too. Yes, yes. And and her 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 diaries as well, which are so like they, they just have such a like sense of typical girlhood in many ways you know she's like we had corn for dinner and I think so-and-so is dreamy right like they're just very teenage but then also these kinds of questions about what she wants to be do I want to be an artist do I want to be a writer are really interesting and her relationship with her mother is fascinating they have a lot of correspondence and there are just these one of my favorite moments is this letter Sylvia's writing home to her mother she's on this sort of summer job while she's in college she's babysitting on the east coast and she's not happy she's very unhappy and she writes back to her mother like how do you make peas like you know what do I just put them in a pot on the stove and heat them up like what what do I do right and it's such a great human moment in that letter I'd like to circle back to something that you brought up earlier it may seem like a, a small point to, to most people but um, I think you and I are both on the same page about about appreciating the nuance that has to has to sort of be parsed out behind the phrase. And that's the phrase of lost and found when talking about things 
located in archival collections and then that are produced and made available on, um, on a larger scale, like, for example, with, with us publishing Mary Ventura and the Ninth Kingdom. Because it's not lost like no one has ever seen this before, because there are scholars and researchers coming to look at these archival collections. And, and as we talked about before, there's a whole library team that works with getting these, these papers and ephemera in order. How would you advise people to think about the ideas of lost and found when telling stories from archives? Yeah, this is such a complicated question, and we sort of chafed a little bit when the story was described as lost, because we were like, but, but wait, it's right here, we've seen it, we've given, like, we've put it in front of so many people, we've taught classes with it, so we have this kind of you know, instinctual, like, need to sort of, you know, but wait, lost is not the word. And it's tricky. I also, I just feel like describing something as lost and found oversimplifies mm-hmm. the whole process of scholarship and research, which is, as we've talked about already, there are so many people involved. There are so many people who have touched collections. And with the scholar herself or himself or themselves, the process that they go through to make connections to other works, to bring something to light, to realize what they're looking at and why this is important and why it needs to be brought to the larger attention of the world is is a complicated process that being reduced to sort of like, well, I, I stumbled upon this in the dusty archive and now I've, I've found it is not quite right. So I think, however, the point that we would really like to drive home at the library is that there are so many, so, so, so many discoveries to be made in a library like this. And we live to facilitate those discoveries. It's what we are here for. So our main concern is that people know that these materials are in libraries and archives. A lot of work has gone into preserving them and making them available and to to make use of them and to make your own discoveries. I have no question that there are things in this building that no one has ever laid eyes on that are very important. <laughs> Not every collection is described as well as Platt is. And, you know, there's a lot to be seen and done. We kind of feel like we spend our lives sort of shouting from the rooftops, like, come use our collection. They're great. And we want libraries to be represented as the thriving, exciting, vibrant places that they are. We don't like that trope of sort of the dusty, musty stacks where things are lost or secrets or it's a hidden treasure that no one can see because that's just not what special collections libraries are. We are, many of us are very open, accessible, exciting, and wanting you to come in and see our materials. It's, it's a great place for, for stories to be told because chances are they're going to be there. Yes. I just have one more question for you, and this is a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Primarily, we are geared for teachers and their students. Who was your favorite teacher? Oh my goodness. Well, that's pretty easy. My favorite teacher is actually my current boss, Joel Silver, who is the director of the Lilly Library. When I I I came to IU to be uh, to work on a, a advanced degrees in English, and I took a job at the Lilly Library as a desk attendant, and I had no idea that you could 
make a career out of rare books and manuscripts, that being a rare book librarian was a job. So I started taking classes in the library science program here, and I got the opportunity to take classes from Joel. He teaches classes on rare book librarianship and reference sources for rare books and history of the book. And I not only came to absolutely passionately love these materials, but come to understand that I could build a life taking care of them and connecting them with people. So yeah, his classes, his teaching changed my life, and now I'm lucky enough to get to work with him here. So everything worked out really great, and I teach some of those classes now myself for the, the program here, so it's kind of come in this sort of beautiful full circle, and I love getting the chance to teach the next generation of special collections librarians. That's really, really wonderful. Rebecca, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was great to talk to you. Red neon lights blinked automatically and a voice grated from the loudspeaker. Train leaving on track three. Train leaving for... Train leaving. I know that must be your train, Mary Ventura's mother said. I'm sure it is, dear. Hurry, do hurry now. Have you your ticket? Yes, mother, I do. But do I have to go right away? So soon? You know how trains are, Mary's father said. He looked anonymous in his gray felt hat, as if he were traveling incognito. You know how trains are. They don't wait. Yes, father, I know. The long black hand of the clock on the wall clipped off another minute. Everywhere there were people running to catch trains. Above them, the vault of the railroad station lifted like the dome of a huge cathedral. Train leaving on track three. Train leaving for... Train leaving. Hurry, dear. Mrs. Ventura took Mary by the arm and propelled her through the glittering marble halls of the railroad terminal. Mary's father followed with her suitcase. Other people were hurrying to the train gate marked three. A conductor in a black uniform, his face shaded by the visor of his cap, herded the crowd in through the intricate black grillwork of the iron gate to the platform beyond. Mother, Mary said, halting, hearing the colossal hissing of the engine on the sunken track. Mother, I can't go today. I simply can't. I'm not ready to take the trip yet. Nonsense, Mary, her father cut her short, jovially. You're just getting jittery. The trip north won't be an ordeal. You just get on the train and don't worry about another thing until you get to the end of the line. The conductor will tell you where to go then. Come now, there's a good girl. Mary's mother tucked a strand of gilt blonde hair up under her black velvet hat. It will be an easy trip. Everyone has to leave home sometime. Everyone has to go away sooner or later. 